You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. We talked about pathways. We talked about we began kicking off the, a month just talking about Scripture. Uh, we're not. We're going to begin Ephesians today, but uh, with how important Scripture is as our identity of servants of Christ, and we draw to Christ by being in the Scripture. And after the message, we shared three options of of reading Scripture. And this description, these options, we still want to say, hey, this isn't. You know, you can do it any time. There's a description out there on the Connect booth as you go out to the left. Um, option one was just read through the Gospel of Mark, one chapter a day. Option two was use the Second Timothy three passage. Um, that we went through last week as a framework for studying the scripture and option four was to memorize some scripture and and josh and i were talking about it this week we want you to understand that this is we don't just create busy work for you to say hey let's let's keep busy and and those kind of things these we really feel are uh, ways to apply what we learn and really will draw us to christ as his servants but also, we wanted you to know that we're not just trying to create things for you to do that we don't do. So we have also, as elders, have committed ourselves for uh, extended projects of applying the very things we've asked you to do. Josh, for example, has, has taken option two of using the Second Timothy 3 passage as a framework with a group of other guys as a triad are going to be studying through the book of Ephesians together. So they're going to take that model that we walk through and studying it and seeing it and and, and actually, in a couple of weeks, some of them will be sharing some of their findings with you from up here. I personally have, uh, I do option two quite a bit, um, so I wanted to, to challenge myself a little bit. And it's been many, many years since I've memorized any scripture and, uh, or any, any concerted effort in memorizing scripture. So I chose option three, um, and, and that's to memorize scripture. We also have some guidelines that are out there in the Connect booth. If you want some, a technique, if memorizing words and is not something easy for you or it's not something you're familiar with this this is a technique of just learning how to to memorize uh portions of text specifically large portions of text um and um and i have decided that myself i'm going to try to memorize the book of titus titus is not a very big book it's only three chapters it's 46 verses um but it's a book that I study often and have been studying, and I just wanted to make it a part of my life. So I am committing, it'll take me three or four months to, if I stay on schedule, three verses down, 43 to go, okay? Um, so to memorize Titus. And here, I want to share you, this is just a little freebie here for those who choose the, the memorization option, okay? Um, I, I can say the verses over and over again, but sometimes I learn to, where I can restart reciting the verses and be not thinking about the verses. You ever get that way where you memorize something? So what I've done to reinforce my learning is I op- just open up a simple Word document and I type the verses. I put Titus 1.1, 1, 1, and then I type out the verse. And that tactileness, that seeing and thinking through the words helps reinforce me and I've actually memorized the the verses better both in other times but even now better by just doing that simple exercise and I type it out and I compare it to the text and got it right and uh, early on this week I wasn't getting it so right I was reciting it but then when I compared to what I was writing it wasn't quite quite on right so that's a that's for free okay if you yes when when I when I say it oh oh when I reflect when you hear it okay that's presumptuous um, 
Um, I, I, uh, I do. No, I don't. I don't do this. Anyways, let's move on. Okay. Um, if you call yourself a Christian, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, does your life as a Christian ever feel schizophrenic? Does, it, does, it, does you ever feel that the, being a Christian, you kind of coexist in contra, contradictory aspects of your life? Now, I'm not talking about just the ups and downs of normal life. I'm not talking about this, the tensions of relationships or living in an ever-changing culture. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about your walk with Christ, your being a Christian. Does, and, and when it comes to your desires and your efforts to, to live in a way that is in line with the biblical truths that you know and that you learn, do things sort of get out of whack? Does there seem to be a tension in, in what you're learning and what you're trying to do? Do you feel like you're pulled sometimes in contra- contradictory directions? I do sometimes. More so in years past than I do now. But it has sometimes feeling that tension. In some ways, the Christian life will always have a certain degree of tension. But there are multiple aspects of biblical truth that seem to exist in tension. And as we study scripture and we learn these things, we'll, we'll see that they are in tension. For example, I'm just going to share some with you. We, we, the Bible tells us, I'm not going to give you scripture verses, I'm just going to say things. We, we are set free from sin, yet we continue to yield to it. We have been saved and yet we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have been given rest, yet we are to labor to enter that rest. We are forgiven, yet continue to need to confess our sins. We know the love of Christ, yet this love surpasses our knowledge. We have died to sin, and yet must continue to flee from sin. We are new and yet are not what we should be. We are a new creation, yet we battle with the old self. We have joy, yet we are commanded to rejoice. We have been set free, and yet we are slaves. We are fallen creatures, and yet we are also children of God. We are saints yet sinners. We have peace, and yet we have to strive to be in that peace. Does that ever sound like the tensions of your life and the truth you sometimes hear? Today we're going to begin a series preaching through the book of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in this letter, Paul is going to lay out many truths and principles of the gospel and gospel truth. And he's going to say, how is this gospel, what is it, He's going to spend three chapters unpacking what it is and then three chapters uh, demonstrating how we are to live in light of the truth of that gospel, both for us as individuals and us as families, but especially for us as churches. And he's going to show that there are real tensions in the Christian life. And those tensions aren't just because the Bible is contradictory or self-conflicting. It is because being transformed by the truth of the gospel sometimes creates those tensions. We do not have to be schizophrenic in our Christian walk. In fact, we should have confidence. We should be a people of confidence as individuals, as families, as churches. We should be known for our confidence. And not just confidence in and of itself, but a confidence that produces a boldness, a boldness in Christ. 
should be what we are known for. And that boldness in our lives, and especially a boldness in our church community. We're going to begin today by looking just at the first two verses of the first chapter of Ephesians. Paul's greeting to the church at Ephesus. And I'm going to read those verses now. So I'm going to ask that you stand. And in honor of God's reading of God's word to us, this letter was written numerous, many, many years ago. But because it's part of God's word, it is also written to us. So don't hear it to the Ephesians. Hear it to us at Red Sea. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. From this very short two verses, a greeting in a letter to a people long ago, but is to us, I want to stress that every Christian should live boldly for Christ because of our confidence in Christ. That's my big idea. That's, if you walk away with one thing today, that's what I want you to hear, that every Christian should live boldly for Christ because of our confidence in Christ. And I think this passage, these two verses, give us three reasons why we should have that confidence. What, what is our confidence in? And in this greeting, Paul gives us three reasons we should be bold and confident in him. The first one, our confidence in our calling by Christ. We have a confidence in our calling by Christ. We see this in verses, the first part of verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ. The word apostle means called and sent by Christ. In this case, by Christ. He's called to do a job, and he's sent as a representative. He belongs to Christ, represents Christ. He's a messenger for Christ. And we, it's similar to our identity as ambassadors. There's very similar overlap with that, where we are called to be ambassadors to the world. We have a message that we have been entrusted with. People don't... Our, don't, we don't represent ourselves. We don't even just represent Red Sea. We resent, represent the Lord who has called us to himself and has sent us to represent him. And we speak with authority, not because we in ourselves have authority, neither did an apostle, neither did the amb- ambassadors, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ that we represent. With his authority, we can speak boldly and confidently to the world. Paul called himself an apostle often. In, verse, in Romans 1, he said, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. He, this is not just something he decided to do. It's something that God's worked in his life. Paul, I want you to come and be a messenger. And what, what am I going to be focused on? What's my message? I want to set you apart for the good news that Christ died for people's sins. He wanted to, Jesus wanted to call him to that. But this calling is not unique to Paul. This calling is not unique to church leaders. It is a calling that all Christians have as they follow Christ. We see this in Ephesians 1. We're going to see this a little bit uh, in the coming weeks where Paul is praying for them. He's praying for the Ephesians. We're going to, in two weeks, go through that at length. But in that part of that prayer was, he says, God, give them insight, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. All Christians are called to that same hope. In Ephesians 2, he 
He says, Paul says, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by your own works, so that no one can boast. But then he goes on and says, for, in verse 10, why? Why are we, why did he save us and so gracious? He says, for your uh, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are called to do something, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that calling of all Christians, we're saved by grace, we're not saved by our works, but we are saved for works. That's the calling that we're called to do. In Ephesians 4, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul unpacks all these different angles of the gospel. And in Ephesians 4, he changes the course of the letter. And he says, listen, now that I've told you all of this, I want you guys to know something. He says, I therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 4, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now that I've talked about that calling for three chapters, he's going to say, I want to show you the way to live, to walk in a way that it reflects that and it demonstrates that and actually will change your lives. That calling is for all of us. We need to have confidence in our calling by Christ. But how does being called by God give us confidence? How does being called by God give us confidence? Well, we can have confidence because we know that our calling is according to God's purpose. It's according to his purpose for our life. And he says in here in verse one, uh, the first part of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. By the will of God. Uh, Paul, in the, first, uh, in, in the first 11 verses of Ephesians, is going to talk about the will of God four times. Four times in the first 11 verses, he's going to make a big deal about the will of God. I'm not going to go into great length because we're going to look at that in more detail next week. But in there, just the repetition of this, you are called, Paul was called by the will of God. Later, he said, in verse 5, he says, He are predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In verse 9, he says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In, in verse 11, he says, In him we have been predestined, uh, excuse me, in him we have an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God's will and God's purpose go hand in hand. God's will is what he determines to do, and God's purpose is this is what's going to happen. And we are called in Christ according to his purpose and his will. That's what it means for us to be called. And, and what does this look like for us? If, we're, if, we, if Paul says he's an, a, a, an apostle and we're ambassadors, what does it mean for us to be called by God to doing his will and to achieving his purpose? Well, we could look at a number of places, but in 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. He says, all this, that, that he's talking about the gospel, the good news coming and changing people's lives, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, so we responded to the gospel, And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciles us and says, now that you're reconciled to God, your your relationship with God is right, you go tell other people how to get right with God. And then he goes on and says, that is, um, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. So here's what God's doing. God is doing the reconciling. God is saving the world, not us. God is reconciling the world to himself. He's doing a work. That's part of his purpose and his will that earlier in Ephesians Paul was talking about. And it's not counting their trespasses against them because of the cross and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God's doing the reconciling, but we get to tell everybody out what God's doing. 
That's what it means to be an ambassador. To mean it means to be an apostle. And then it says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. I, I don't know about you, but that should be a confidence builder. When we open our mouths to speak the gospel to anybody in any situation, the text says that God's doing the work, not us. That God is moving in their hearts. The gospel of what Christ has done is changing people's lives. We just get to be the mouthpiece. We just, and just, like it's like a bad thing to do. We have the privilege of being tools of God to use it. He's called us to open our mouths and share the gospel. And in therefore, God, people get reconciled to him. And guess what they get to do? Open their mouths and share the gospel. And that's what it means to be called. That's why we can have confidence. In Romans 8, a well-known passage for many Christians in times of trouble, they say, and we know that all things... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, the good there doesn't mean an absence of problems. It doesn't mean free of conflict. That's not the good. He goes on in that Romans 8, the next verse, and says, that good that you get to work towards is being conformed to the image of Christ. That, that good and the purpose of God in our life when he is working in us is that we become more and more like Jesus. That's the calling that we have in our lives as individuals, as families, as a church, is that we progress, and that confidence is that we, as we progress and grow and mature and are transformed by the truth of the gospel, we actually become more and more like Christ himself. We are an image of what Christ is. And this is like following instructions. An illustration of this would be following instructions to to do a model. My, My father, who's in his 80s, is a Lego fanatic. Okay, he he has been doing Lego. He lives in New York. It's winter, six months out of the year. Okay, there's not a lot for somebody in their 80s to do. So he has made a shop and he builds Lego models. I'm not talking about these little car things. I'm talking about these massive things. Okay, and the Death Star, all the Star Wars stuff, the Millennium Falcon, all the Walker creature things. He's made robots. He's made cars. He's made the Taj Mahal and the Eiffel Tower. Uh, if there is a flat surface in the house, it has a Lego model on it. And they're hanging from the ceiling. He added shelves to the house to put these. And, and he loves doing this. And so I was, we were visiting, and hey, look, Lego, Lego, Lego. Hey, that's great. And, and I said, hey, Dad, sort of like conversationally, hey, what, what's the secret of you know, doing Lego? And he's like, well, you've got to follow the instructions. Uh, it's Lego, Dad. It's Lego. Really? Is it that complicated? And he's like, oh, no, the this, this secret, if you want it to turn out the way it's supposed to, the way it was designed to, you've got to follow the instructions. And, and, and he says, sometimes I'll get working away, and there's thousands of pieces in these models, thousands. And he goes, I'm working away, and all of a sudden I'll go to put the next piece in, and it won't fit. It, it won't fit. And so what does he know if he's following instruction and the piece doesn't fit? What does he know? Well, it could be the wrong piece. That's, that's trust that he's looking at. This. They're wordless instructions. They're just pictures. He, he, he messed up earlier. If it doesn't fit now, and he's, okay, this is the right piece, it is, and it doesn't fit, that means someplace earlier he made a mistake. So what he has to do is reverse the instructions and backtrack until he finds the mistake. And usually all it is is a piece is over by a row. But that throws off the whole model. So he goes back, 
It might be 10 steps earlier. It might be 50 steps earlier. He doesn't know until he gets it, finds that, fixes it, and brings it back. And, and, and we, in many respects, are like that. We, God has an instruction manual. Not just a to-do list or steps or process, but he has a design. He has a purpose for us in Christ. And he has given us his word to show us how to move in that direction. And there are some instructions. There are some things to do in response and faith. And we do it. And then once in a while we say, oh man, things are out of whack. This isn't working the way it's supposed to work. And what we need to do then is to backtrack. Where, where did we go wrong earlier in this process? Where, where was it that we got, got one off track? Fix that, address that issue, whatever it might be, and then continue on. And that is how we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ according to the purpose which is he des- designed us. And Ephesians is such an instruction manual. It's a, it's a letter to a church. Here is how to be a church transformed by the gospel. Follow these instructions. That's what we're going to be looking at. It's describing not only our lives transformed by the gospel, Paul in Ephesians is going to tell us how to get there. And that's what we're looking at during this time. And some of you might be saying, okay, yeah, um, I'm not sure I'm qualified for this kind of calling. Yeah, it might be great to be called by the purpose of God and the will of God and being conformed to the image of Christ to look like Jesus, but I'm not sure I'm that person. I'm not sure I feel qualified. Uh, I don't think this whole thing, in fact, it, it kind of freaks me out that, that, that I have this God of the universe is calling me to participate in something like this. Well, Paul addresses that. That every Christian, as we said, every Christian should live boldly for Christ because of our confidence in Christ, confidence in our calling by Christ. But the second aspect that Paul tells us, there's a confidence in our identity in Christ. There's a confidence in our identity in Christ. See this in the second half of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. To the holy ones. We sang that, that song and Josh talked about holy, holy, holy and how in Christ we are holy. The word saints literally means the holy ones, the holy people. And it's, it's, we're set apart, consecrated. We don't use that word. It's interesting. As you study the word saints, the word saints, plural, occurs 61 times in the New Testament. 61 times in the New Testament, believers in Christ are referred to as saints. Nine times in the book of Ephesians. Nine times in the book of Ephesians. Okay? The word, the, the word in a very quick study on my part, but the word Christians, plural, what we are mostly known by today, occurs once. The word Christian, singular, occurs twice. Saints occurs 61 times. Christians comes three times. The early church were not known as Christians. In fact, we're told in Acts 13 why we were named. It's a derogatory term. Those Christ people. That's it. It's a nickname. Those people who are always talking about the Christ. That's how we got the name Christian. And, and it was dubbed on it. But the church referred to themselves as saints, the holy ones. That's what, that was the number one way they referred to themselves. And, and it's a theme given out throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. And Peter picks that up. 
that idea that we are set apart. We are holy ones. In his letter, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have to receive the mercy. Being us together collectively, we are known as saints. That's our identity. Remember, we talked about identity already this year, and we've identified three that we're going to emphasize. Servants, family, and ambassadors. We could have picked saints. We actually talked about picking saints as one of our identities. It has a very strong biblical understanding why we should. And our identity isn't something we make up or we just dub ourselves. Our identity is what God says is true about us because he's made it true about us. That's what our identity is. We are set apart for what God has called us to do. Unfortunately, the word saint has been widely misunderstood, especially in our culture. In the, as the church developed, in the early church, in the New Testament times, it was a common phrase we called each other. They, they, if you said, hey, who are the Christians in Ephesus, they probably wouldn't have understood what you meant. Who are the saints in Ephesus, they knew what you're talking about. And then as church history progressed and, and, and the, it became, saints became a word we designated for the original apostles. So you see, some old Bibles have St. Mark, St. Matthew, St. Ma- uh, John. That's what it became part of. And as, as history progressed, and particularly out of the Roman Catholic tradition, saints became a, an unusual achievement. It's a person who has an unusual achievement, including performing miracles. And they were designated as saints, like St. Augustine and St. Francis of Assisi. And then it even progressed more. So there were patron saints. Patron saints. Saints who had specific jobs to do now, not just back then. So I did a little research. Like St. Joseph, who is the saint, patron saint of travelers. Okay? Anybody here with Roman Catholic background? Okay. I'm going to go through a list. I do not mean to offend you. It's my precursor. In all seriousness, I'm not here to mock this. I'm just trying to show how the word has changed. Okay? There is the I didn't know there was a patron saint of advertising, uh, Saint Bernardine of uh, Siena. This is time to pay your taxes. So there is a patron saint of tax collectors, Saint Matthew. I could not find a patron saint of taxpayers though. So I'm a little concerned about that. There is a patron saint of computers and the internet. Uh, um, St. Isidore of Seville. Uh, The patron saint of lovers. St. Valentine. We have a whole day dedicated to that. Okay, St. Valentine. Uh, St. Patrick, to my, uh, uh, you know, March 17th is coming up. St. Patrick say, I assumed he was the saint to paint of Beer, he's not. He's not, okay, at least according to this list. He's the saint, saint, uh, uh, the um, patron saint of Ireland, Nigeria, and engineers. He has triple duty here. Anybody here a nurse or a nursing student? Okay, well, there's good news and there's bad news. Okay, the good news is you have three patron saints. Uh, St. Agatha, St. John of God, and St. Camillus de Lely. I, can't, I know, French. Um, the bad news is nurses apparently need three patron saints. Okay? It's a little discouraging. Um, I, of course, had to look up St. Monica. Okay? 
my wife's name, okay? Uh, St. Monica also does triple duty. Uh, She's a hard worker. She's the patron saint of married women. Good to know, good to know, okay, when you're married to Monica. She's also the patron saint of mothers, okay? That progresses, right? Married women to mothers. And she's the patron saint of alcoholics, okay? I don't know if that is a progression there that she can, or married women, mothers, oh, we need alcoholism like that goes. I I don't know, okay? Uh, We live in Portland, so the patron saint, there is not one of recycling in green, sorry, but there is a patron saint of ecology, that is St. Francis of Assisi. There is a a patron saint of dogs, Um, I don't know how to pronounce it, Uh, St. R-O-C-H, Rock, Roach. Um, he is, by the way, the patron saint of dogs and knee problems. So if you're walking your dog, have knee problems, he's the guy to go to. Uh, um, saint or paint of the homeless, Saint Benedict, Benedict Joseph Labre. And of course, since we're in the middle of a sermon, the patron saint of preachers and orators, uh, Saint John of Christensen. We have, now the shift has been to very specific. In our culture, mostly we use the word saint as a derogatory term, don't we? We, we use it not and it's intended that this person is holy, this person is, is set apart. We use it as somebody who's hyper-legalist, somebody who thinks more of themselves than they really are. We know that they're full of faults. They just don't think that. So we, we make comments, oh, he's, he's such a saint. We mean it in a derogatory fashion. Now, my point of going through all of that was to show that a primary designation of believers, walkers with Christ, in the early part of the church was that we are holy. We are set apart. We are called by God to do that. He makes us that way, and yet as time progresses, it becomes a derogatory term. We have lost, not only lost its meaning, but lost its use. And what it has done is not just the use of it, but we have lost that identity in Christ. The church does not think of it as a gathering of saints. Paul wrote his letters to the saints in these particular places. He doesn't call them Christians. What qualifies someone in to be a saint? What, what qualifies us to be a saint? Well, he says that. To be the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful, the word faithful and believers is the same. It can, depending on context, it means the same thing. It means to exercise belief or trust, in this case, explicitly in Jesus. Saints and faithful are the same thing. So in that language, in the way it is there, they're forming unit. So he's writing to this to the saints faithful in Jesus. The, forget the Ephesians part. That's just a ge- geographic designation. So it's not two different groups of people. It's not there's a, one group of saints and there's also the believers over here. Or there's a small group of saints and the rest are believers. It's the same group of people. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint. That's what Paul's saying in this. Paul will use faith uh, five times in the first three chapters. He'll, he'll unpack what it means to believe and have faith in Christ five times just in the first three chapters. And in, and in 1 Corinthians, he's, he, his introductory to them is the church of God that is in Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, there we go, calling to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. And so he is saying there that it's not just a simple designation for unique people. It's everybody who calls on the name of the Lord are saints, called to be saints. Well, why should this give us confidence? 
I don't know about you, but I often don't feel like a saint. I often don't feel holy and set apart. But we can have confidence because we are who we are by the virtue of our union with Christ, not by the way we feel. An identity is what God says we are, not what we feel like we are to be. See that in verse, the second half of that. Be faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, and similar phrases, in Christ, in him, in whom, in the beloved, in the Lord, will occur 30 times in the book of Ephesians. 30 times in six chapters, Paul will talk about being in Jesus, to be connected to Jesus, being united to Jesus. The, the best imagery I can think of to understand that in Jesus is Jesus' words himself, where he says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides or lives or stays connected in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So when Paul uses that phrase, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in the Lord, what is he talking about? He's talking about we stay connected in that relationship with Jesus because of what Jesus has done. And you can think of the imagery of a vine with branches. If the branch is going to live and it's going to stay nourishing and produce lots of fruit, it must stay connected to the vine. And that's what it means for us to be in Christ, in him, in, in, in the Lord. And this is something that we receive by faith. It's not something we earn. It's not something we do. It's not something we maintain. It's something that's given to us by faith. In Romans 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, in other words, declared righteous, declared right before God, by, by his grace as a gift through the redemption, a price was paid, that, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, simply means he absorbed the punishment and the judgment of God on our behalf, to be received by faith. To be received by faith. How does a person respond to the gospel message? How does a person become a saint? They respond to the gospel. You, you hear the message that Christ died for our sins, and you personalize and say, you know what, Christ died for my sins. You, you believe that it's true, and not simply true for in general, but true for you. That's faith. But part of that also is that you turn away from your self-centeredness and your self-sufficiency, and you turn to Jesus and trusting that he, what he has done for us on the cross is sufficient. And because of what we have been declared righteous, he has absorbed the wrath of God, and he has paid the price for us, we are declared by God to be holy ones. All the sin, all the judgment, all the barriers that hold us back from God is removed. And we have a clear relationship to connect, being united in Christ to God. And therefore, we are declared by God to be saints, the holy ones. Okay, we, we may be called by Christ and we have our identity in Christ. Still, not, still short a little bit on the confidence. Those may be true, but again, I, I don't feel that way sometimes. Sometimes it feels like it's a little overwhelming. I'm, I'm not up for the task, and you might feel sometimes the same way. That living according to our calling and living according to our identity seems like a lot of work. And I'm not sure that I can do that. I, I'm not sure that I might be overwhelmed or I, I might blow it. So how else can we build that confidence in Christ? And he tells us. 
He says, and the main point, every Christian should live boldly for Christ because of our confidence in Christ, confidence in our calling by Christ, confidence in our identity in Christ, and thirdly, our confidence in our blessings from Christ. We see this in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an invocation. This is a prayer. Unlike other letter writers of his day, Paul doesn't say, I'm Paul, this is who you are, how are you doing? Or greetings, or hello. He doesn't do the typical stuff. He begins with, in all his letters, a blessing. This isn't something you do, this isn't something you earn. He's asking God, he's writing to the Ephesians, and the first thing he does after identifying himself and them is saying, God, I want you to bless them because you're a great God who blesses people. And I'm leaning with, starting with, grace and peace to you. This is the theme of the book of Ephesians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prayer, it's a blessing. Grace means God's undeserved favor. We don't earn grace, it's given. In fact, it's called grace because we don't deserve it, we deserve the exact opposite. In Ephesians, Paul is going to talk about grace 12 times. 12 times this whole aspect of grace is going to come up. It's a, it, grace is a characteristic that is part of the heart of the gospel message. In fact, in Titus, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus, the message of the gospel, he calls it the grace of God. And it brings salvation for all people. Grace in that way is synonymous with the heart of the gospel. Grace is unmerited favor. It provides us salvation uh, as sinners. And it's something we need to remember in Paul and Ephesians. We already read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, by the grace, by his grace as a gift. It's a gift that we receive, we don't earn. In Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But grace is not only for our salvation in Christ. Grace is also how we live our lives, especially when we're struggling, especially when it's hard. Paul, as a man, have had great visions. He had great ministry. He also suffered a tremendous amount for the sake of Christ. And much of the New Testament chronicles his life and his words and his works. And he, in, in the midst of having great revelations and great, just uh, tremendous experiences with the power of God, also had tremendous suffering through persecution and just different things that happened to him. And in, in, in 2 Corinthians, he's talking to God about these struggles. He's saying, I, I've seen great things, but God, there's some things that I still can't get over. And I'm going to bring them to you, God. And he says, and, and as he shares this with God, he, he tells the Corinthians, I prayed, God, take this away. And God's answer to this man is this. But he said to me, God, the Father, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You hear that? Uh, Paul, yeah, you have struggles. I'm going to give you not an answer. Remove the struggle, not an answer. I'm going to give you more grace. And that undeserved favor in your life, in your struggle right now, is going to be a demonstration of my power because the weaker you are, the stronger you're going to be in my grace. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's part of how grace is. But Paul, that verse says more. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Peace. In Ephesians, Paul will talk about peace eight times. Eight times he'll bring up the topic of peace. It's a char- it also is a characteristic of the heart of the gospel. He says in Romans, for example, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel allows us to, to, the conflict that we have between us and God is removed through the gospel. And now we have peace, reconciliation with God. But, but that, that peace isn't just about between us and God. It's also between us and other people. When Paul preached the, to, to the, the uh, non-Jewish audience in Cornelius in, in, in Acts chapter 10, he, he describes the gospel as preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. The peace he was talking about isn't just a peace with God, which it was, but they were Gentiles. They were not part of God's people, chosen people. But now they were going to be included, and therefore they have peace, racially, ethnic peace. And Paul will spend some time on that in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And just like grace, peace is not something that, that is just for our salvation. It's also something we have when we struggle. For example, in Philippians, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let the, your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So peace will guard your hearts and your minds. It's not that God will answer your prayer and remove what the struggle is. It's that in the midst of that struggle, you will have a peace. We are in the process of trying to purchase a home. And as if you've purchased a home, it vacillates with the emotions and the excitement versus terror of buying a house, both, both the, the decision-making process and trying to select a house and putting in an offer and wait and, and then thinking about, can we afford it? And, oh, yeah, we can do this and fantasize about that. And then, oh, crap, uh, I don't think we can. Uh, if we just eat Cheerios, we'll be fine, okay? And, and last night I woke up with the, I'm really excited. Lord, give us this house. I don't know if I want this house. It's a lot of work and vacillating. And so I woke up with this vacillating of feeling. I was just anxious. And the, and the classic came of the way, classic understanding of the term. And so I quoted this verse to myself. I frequently quote this verse to myself. Don't be anxious, Royce. Calm down. Pray, lift it up to God, and, and give him thanksgiving for what you can think about as thankful. And you know what? That peace will be there. doesn't mean all the tension's gone. doesn't mean the cause of the anxiety's gone. But there's something, there's a confidence. There's a trust that things are going to be according to the will of God, whether, either way, whether we get it or don't get it. That's what he's talking about here. Not just an absence of conflict, but a peace that transcends that kind of thing. A joy, a confidence, a boldness in who you are and what you are in Christ. That even while things are turmoil around you, you still know that Jesus is Jesus and you're his child. That is the peace that Paul's talking about there. How, do, how does grace and peace give us confidence? Sometimes when our lives are messes, we're in struggle, we have anxiety, we don't feel a lot of peace. We don't feel grace. We don't feel peace. And we do not, but, the reason, but we need to remember, we, don't, we, don't, we do not have confidence in the, our feelings of grace and peace. We have confidence in the giver of grace and peace. 
We have confidence because God has given us, the Father has given us to us, the Son has given us to us. He says this, it comes from God our Father. God our Father. The, 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 we are uh, children of God and we, the Holy Spirit witnesses with our Holy Spirit according to Romans 8. Paul talks about that. That we can, in a time of turmoil, can cry out and say, Abba, Father. And we know that because the Holy Spirit witnesses with us, confirms in us that we are children of God. The, the Father of the universe cares for us as little children. That's where the grace and peace comes from. But the grace and peace also comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. Master Jesus Christ. Paul's going to talk about this in every chapter of Ephesians. Paul refers to Jesus as Lord. He's Lord. He's in control. He's got everything. He's particularly, Paul, talks about Jesus being Lord when it comes to unseen spiritual dimensions and principalities and powers and stuff. And, and we understand that in Christ he is Lord. When, when Jesus, just before he ascended, before he went to be with the Father, he gave the great commission. And he begins that by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the Lord. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We, we have been called to, as ambassadors for Christ because he has the authority to send us and we represent him. That he's also, the, the, as Lord, gives us that grace and peace. And remember, grace and peace are blessings. They are not earned. They are not deserved. You cannot pay God back for them. They are blessings that God gives because we don't deserve it, but because of his generosity and his love and his mercy, they are gifts to us. So we've seen there's three reasons why we should have confidence. Every Christian should be, live boldly for Christ because of our confidence in Christ. Confidence in our calling by Christ. Confidence in our identity in Christ. Confidence in our blessings from Christ. I want to emphasize one other thing there that can be very, very easily missed in this introduction. It's something in our culture that runs against our culture and our personal preferences. And it's a little thing... In, in the sense of it's easy to miss, but it's a huge thing as we work our way through Ephesians. And that is simply this. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. Saints. Plural. Plural. Of the times the saints appears, I think I said it was 61 times, something like that, right? Not a, yeah, it's 61 times. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, all except for once, if I remember correctly, all except for once, it's plural. And the one time it's not plural, it's Paul saying, greet every saint. Well, every saint is a lot of saints. So in other words, the concept of being holy ones is always in the plural. It's always a group of people. It's not individual people. And Paul wrote his letter to a group of saints in a town, an area of Ephesus. They weren't the people who met in a building 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. They were a bunch of Christian community who impacted the area of Ephesus in a great way, turned the place upside down. But he, he wrote it to the group of them, not to an individual. He wrote it to that. And that's extremely important as we read through and study and think about what does it mean to have confidence in Christ. The danger here that we have, particularly in our day and age, particularly in our American culture, is that we hear and try to understand the truths contained in Ephesians and all the Bible and the gospel itself 
in an individualistic manner. We say, we say what does this say to me? We say, well, well, how do I apply this to my own life? What we're really thinking is, my walk with Christ is a private matter, and I can do it on my own. We, we might not say that, but that's the way we live often. The biblical truth is personal. It does imply every one of us individually, yes. But it is never private. The gospel, the Christian walk, is always personal, but it is never private. The, pri- the primary reason we lack confidence, I think, as Christians, as families, and as a church, in that boldness that we have is because we isolate ourselves from other Christians in our walk with Christ. And the truths that are presented to us in the Gospels and the New Testament to the church, we individualize. And when we do that, we lose the emphasis. It's like trying to play a team sport by yourself. Oh, you can do it, but you're going to get the snot kicked out of you. It's meant to do together. And that's what the gospel is meant to do. We, we are to work through the book of Ephesians. And as we do that over the coming months, it is essential that we, first of all, hear and try to understand the truths contained in Ephesians for us as a church. And I'm even going to be bold to say, as Red Sea. We, sh- we should filter it through as us Red Sea. It's okay to do that. We're a gathered group of saints in the name of Christ in this community the greater Portland-Vancouver community, trying to impact it for the sake of the gospel. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what does this say about us, our Christian community, our church, not just me? We need to, how do we apply this to our lives together? It's in the plural. Our thinking means our walk with Christ is together. I cannot live it on my own. I cannot live it. On my own. I must be joined with brothers and sisters in Christ with other saints. The biblical truth is both personal and corporate. It's for the whole group. It's like it's not, it is personal but not private. It is personal and corporate. It's meant for the whole group, the whole church, the whole Christian community. A primary reason we can have confidence. We can have boldness in the gospel and in our lives is because we combine ourselves together with other saints and apply the gospel together to our lives. We draw to Christ, we develop in community, and we deploy to culture together. That's Paul's message for us in the book of Ephesians. When we celebrate communion every week, we take communion as a reminder because Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. But communion is not something that we take as individuals. We don't sell little communion packets for you to go home and do it on your own in your own quiet time. It's it's unbiblical. Communion is taken as the body of Christ. Communion is taken as the group of saints gathered together to worship him. That's why we take communion. We remind each other that Christ died for our sins and we celebrate together. That's why communion is done in a worship gathering on a weekly basis. And if you are a follower of Christ, whether or not you're a member of Red Sea or attend Red Sea, if you are a follower, you have responded to the message that Christ died for our sins and repentance and faith, we invite you to take communion. We will in a few minutes take communion. If you're not a follower of Christ, you you have not responded that way, then we ask that you withhold yourself from not taking communion. 
If you want to know more about either communion or what we feel or baptism, by the way, a little plug here, we're having baptism on, on Easter. Uh, baptism, go and make disciples, teach, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Part of being a disciple is that public declaration that we are in Christ. What are you baptized into? Into Christ and into the covenant community. It's a, it's a group thing. That's what baptism is, by the way. If you get saved, you're not supposed to just go into your tub and dunk yourself. It's a public demonstration and confession of your faith. It's meant to be done in a group. We're going to do that on Easter Sunday. If you want to know more about baptism, talk to Josh and myself. I want to wrap up by, in a couple weeks, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, and Paul's going to pray for the, book of, pray for the church, the, the saints in Ephesus, a very, very powerful prayer. I'm not going to walk through it now. I want to emphasize something in that prayer. What he prays is the three points of our sermon today. He says this, and with this I'm concluding. I do not cease to give thanks for you, he tells them, beginning in verse 16, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You may draw to Christ, is it saying. How? How do we do that, Paul? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, not just your intelligence, but eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know three things. That you may know in your heart three things. What is the hope to which he has called you? What is the hope to which he has called you? Which we said today is confidence in our calling by Christ. The second thing he prays is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's a jam-packed phrase. And what he means? That you have confidence in our identity in Christ. And the third thing he'll pray for is, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? The immeasurable, not, it's not able to be measured, power the greatness of his power toward us, a blessing, who believe, have faith, which is our confidence in the blessings of Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the saints, not just in Ephesus, for the ages to come. That's why it's recorded in the scripture. And that's our prayer for Red Sea. Let's pray. Lord, we do acknowledge that you are the Father of glory. And we pray to you, Lord, we pray to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come before you not in our own, not because we deserve anything, you owe us anything, but because of your generosity, your mercy, your graciousness, the availability of peace and joy through your word and through your spirit working in our lives. Lord, I pray for us. I do pray for the people here as individuals. I pray for their families. I pray for us as a church that we will know a confidence in our calling by Christ. That we will know a confidence in our identity in Christ. And we will know a confidence in our blessings from Christ. And in the confidence, we as a church, as families, will act in that confidence with a boldness to share the gospel with those who don't know it, to be hospitable 
to be around people who need to know more about you, to serve one another, to share with one another, to love one another, and also, Lord, to draw closer to you, to understand all the power and all the blessings that are in you. We thank you for this, Lord, and give you the glory in your precious and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.